Welcome to Season 2 from A Lancashire Lass with me, Lucy Baxter. Joining me today is Bernie Bernard, a motivational speaker and author. I'm delighted to be joined by him and looking forward to chatting all about what he does and um, a little bit more about sort of public speaking and things like that. So welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Thanks very much. It's it's brilliant to be here, Lucy. Thanks very much for inviting me on. I'm feeling great today, thank you. I'm a bit tired. I've been working in in uh, West Cumbria all day, so I've been I've driven back to my house in Lancashire, and now uh, here I am, ready to speak to you. So yeah, everything's great. Thank you. What's your journey been like, becoming a motivational speaker, getting into public speaking? <laughs> Good question. And a very long one, but I'll condense it. I was an idiot at school. First of all, I got an E and a U at A level from a grammar school that my parents moved to get me into the catchment area for. So to say I was an underachiever would be a bit of an understatement, to be perfectly honest. Then I I kind of realised that I'd wasted the, the previous couple of years at A levels by, I don't know, got into trouble. My dad was an ex, my dad was an ex policeman. I'd got into trouble with the police. So I'd created this kind of toxicity around myself just by being I suppose, a traditional kind of adolescent angry boy, really, and, uh, you know, rebelled against lots of things. And then I realised when I opened that envelope with A-levels in it, I'd really wasted the last two years. So I thought, well, what am I going to do? So I needed to leave the town because I'd created this kind of toxic bubble around myself. Went to college, eventually kind of worked it out, lived in the, the northwest, um, well, northeast Wales at the time, but near Chester. So I kind of moved, moved to there. And then after that, I uh, got a job in... Port Sunlight at Unilever, one of the, you know, the, the big soap factory and yeah. uh, worked there. Then I got a job in property construction and I ended up in Salford University, then Man- in, then Lancaster University. And at about the age of 38, I realised one morning, as one afternoon as I was leaving work, you know, when you leave a hot building in the winter and you get that cold air on your face when the door opens? Mm-hmm. I realized at that moment that that was the best part of my day. <laughs> Not the fact that I just moved to Kirby Lonsdale with my, with my wife and my, my two daughters, but the best part of my day was leaving work. And I realized I'd slowly become more and more disappointed with work and very stressed out. And I went to the doctor and he said, well, you're showing the kind of tra- traditional signs of someone who's very stressed. And I think we need to do something about it. So he said, I'm going to sign you off work for three months. And during that time, I thought, well, what am I going to do? I asked my wife for help. She's a counsellor. And I used to joke that she never took her ears home, never brought her ears home with her. But the truth was, I never used to speak about how I was feeling. I just used to kind of get my head down and go go to work. And we sat down and had a chat. And for a while, you know, and then she said, when were you last happy? And I thought for 10 minutes, silence, 10 minute talk, thinking, thinking, do I have to be really careful about what I say here? Now, when your wife asks you when you're happy, what do you say? Well, I thought, you know what? I'm going to tell her the truth. The last time I was happy was four months ago when we were on that campsite in France with the kids. And we just had this mid, big, mad game of football with about 50 kids. And it was just brilliant. And she said, I knew you were going to say that. You need to work with young people. So from then on, I start, I wrote out a couple of kind of enterprise and business programs for schools. And I thought, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to work in schools. And there was there was funding from the Labour government at the time for enterprise and business in work, workshops in schools. So I thought, that's what I'm going to do. Didn't really know what I was doing. 
worked out some kind of fun programs for, for young people, did my first couple of jobs in a school in Preston. Then I did one in Kendall, then another couple of schools in Lancaster. And from then on, I was still on the sick, gave my notice in the day I my sick pay ran out. And um, ever since then, I've been working in schools and we work with about 160,000 young people since then across wow. the UK, all over the place, not just in Northwest, but um, all, all over the country. We've even done some work in UAE and in Belgium and, you know, in other places as well. So that's that's what we do. That's what that's when Innovative Enterprise started. And it's I never really considered myself a motivational speaker or anything. I just used to do workshops with kids. And then someone said, well, why don't you come along to the Professional Speaking Association? So I thought, oh, OK, I will. And then I realised, actually, I am a speaker. I do this all the time. And by then, by that time, I probably worked with about 30,000 young people. I just thought, you know what? I'm I'm OK at this. I'm Yeah, I'll call myself a speaker now. So that's kind of my journey. I didn't really even consider that I was one at the time. And have you always been confident, like even as a child, you know, like speaking in front of, I don't know, your peers in a class or um, speeches? No, not at all. In fact, I was I was a bit of a nerdy kid. I really liked cycling because I didn't have to kind of talk to anybody else. And um, I got a place in the national championships as a schoolboy. when I was 16. I got a place in the Thames. I was in the Thames Valley kind of. I was second place in Thames Valley, got a place in the Nationals. And that's one of the things that kind of sent me off the rails a little bit because my bike got stolen before I had a chance to ride the Nationals. And I, um, my mum wouldn't even look on the insurance at the time. So it, it was just like, oh, no, no, you can't do that. Or, I'm not going to look on the insurance for a bike. So that kind of, and that, and I was got into girls at the same time. So I kind of stopped being interested in, in well, in cycling really. But then... I wasn't the kind of kid that ever stood up in class. I never kind of put my hand up, never did drama or arts or, or you know, acting or anything like that. Really, I reflect back on it now and I thought I really should have done because I would have been all right at it because I was a, a show off, but in the wrong way. I was just kind of getting into trouble and just being a bit of an idiot. So I never really considered myself to to be that kind of person. And very often I'm working in schools and I'll a lot of my workshops involve getting kids to do presentations and stand up in front of their, their peers. And I'll often say, look, a lot of you are probably nervous about this. I'm just going to do a test. And I'll say, teachers who used to love public speaking when they were at school and out of 10 or 15 teachers, you'll generally get one or two that put their hand up. So most of us don't like it. Most of us feel that peer pressure from not wanting to stand up in front of everybody else and, and kind of being seen as a show off. And so it's, I think it's something, something about the British mentality as well. We're, we're brought up from about the age of three or four. We're told, stop showing off. Stop being the clever clogs. Yeah, we know you can do the dance. Yeah, we know you can, you know, we know you can do that football move. We know you can do all that. Just stop showing off. Stop being the clever clogs. Stop, stop standing out. And so when it comes to standing up in front of other people, we've got this thing, oh, I better not show off. I better not do this. Like when interviews, at 16 or 18 we're supposed to go look at us we're fantastic but we don't really have the experience to do it because we've all of our lives we've been told to be modest and stop being loud and stop shouting stop about you know stop showing off about ourselves and I, I just think that that partly leads to us being having this big fear of public speaking and you know peer pressure and having your mates take the mick out of you and that kind of stuff so I think it's it's kind of inbuilt some, sometimes throughout our, our, our younger years that mm -hmm. we don't really want to put ourselves out. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think 
as well in high schools I think that's a lot worse with with children like they start you get the groups don't you and then the cliches and, and the cliques and the people that yeah. pick on people for no reason like it's not yeah. funny like I don't get why it's funny if someone puts the hand up to answer a question and then they get made fun of you know stuff like that or when yeah. you look at it now you're like why was that ever funny um but well, it never really was but shame and guilt and stuff are, are very strong in peer groups aren't they at school mm. like you said about cliques if you want to understand schools watch mean girls or moxie you know you un get to understand that pressure that you feel and as an adult you go well it wasn't that bad well for some of us it was really bad we were awful or we were either bullied or we were the bullies you know and it's there's a bit of the kind of jungle about it isn't it? a bit of the kind of you know kill or be killed kind of thing and it's you know you kind of go with the, you know and you get carried along with that kind of stuff so yeah i think it's um it's challenging and i think it's really difficult and i i'm trying to kind of break through a lot of that with young people trying to get them to see you know you are good at this and actually even if you're not the you know beyonce didn't wake up she wasn't born being one of the best performers in the world you know david beckham wasn't born being the best kind of free kick taker in the world practice 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 the only way you get better at something is keeping on doing it yeah definitely was there a, do you remember remember like the first time you did a speech where you spoke in public and you realized like oh wow i've just done that is there a, <laughs> a moment that you have in your in your mind i mean that yeah there was um I'd, I'd done a lot of school-based workshops until this point and then I used to work uh, with an, well, I still do a, a little bit of work with an organization in the, in the Northwest called the Manufacturing Institute, who work with some of the biggest manufacturers in the country. And, you know, people like BAE Systems in the Northwest, Kellogg's, you know, really big manufacturers. And I used to design challenges around it and then we would deliver it. And as a result of that, we got some funding from the, from the government and we ended up presenting it in Liverpool at this, this massive event, this big joining the dots conference. And I was on stage with the then education secretary and a guy called Lord Young, who'd been advising um, David Cameron about uh, in number 10 about enterprise. And I had to absolutely pinch myself because I'm there doing this speech in front of these incredible people, these really, you know, high level people in the country. And I just I really had to pinch myself. I thought, you know, this is amazing for someone that got an E and a U at A level and I was in trouble. It's taken me a long time to get here, but you can turn things around. And I think it, it was a real, a real incredible moment, actually. So yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Thank you. <laughs> um, and are there sort of topics that you talk about or when it, maybe when it's not doing the workshops or when you just yeah. know, speak, are there any topics or, or do you tend to go on and I don't know, do you tend to go on the theme of we're not good enough, you know, like you were saying, and like the shame and yeah. then working through that and building confidence? Or what's kind of, do you touch on life experiences that you, you know, discuss or what kind yeah. of things do you talk about? Yeah, I mean, hugely. I mean, I, I did a TEDx talk in 2016 called Engineering Random Opportunities to Succeed, which is a very, you know... I thought I'm going to write a book about this called Eros, engineering random opportunity, you know, finding the career you love. Um, and that was, I was invited to do a, a TEDx talk in Whitehaven. And, and basically that, that, that formed the basis of my book, The Ladder, which is about my career experiences, but also 
how I've learned to help young people to kind of work out what they want to do by throwing them into the deep end by giving them enterprise and business challenges and putting them on the spot and say right can you talk about this and you know getting them to kind of develop their skills and, and think about where they fit into the world so that that's one of the things I do I also do a session called launch which is about um, how you can kind of launch yourself and it's about taking responsibility for yourself and not waiting for someone to go oh you should do this it's actually kind of taking control of where you are as a person and thinking well what do I like doing where could I fit into the world and this, there's a bewildering array of careers that you could do, but actually, what do I feel skilled at? What do I find I'm interested in? So narrowing down those thousands of opportunities to maybe six or seven and thinking, okay, which one of those do I like the most and how can I move towards it? And helping young people to see those. So, so they're the two main kind of enterprises and businessy things that I talk about. Um, but I also talk about my own personal experiences and our family experiences. I had testicular cancer as a as a young person, when I was 21, I, I lost my left testicle to cancer. But to be honest, I didn't, I ignored it for about, probably about six or seven weeks. And it was only my then girlfriend at the time that said, what's going on? Who are you seeing? And I said, what are you on about? And she said, well, you haven't been near me for six weeks. What's happening? And I I kind of said, well, well, I'm really sorry. I, I've got this problem down here. And I showed her and she said, right, get to the doctors. And within 10 minutes, I was in the doctor's. And um, the day, the next day I had my testicle removed because it, it was cancerous. It was like the size, I jokingly, when I want to do when I talk to young people about it, I, I describe it as the size, like a microwaved satsuma. It was really, it was, <laughs> it was really boiling and really heavy. And it was just like twice the size of the other one. And I'd just been ignoring this thing because I thought, oh, it would be all right. Because blokes are terrible, terrible at going to the doctors and admitting that they've got a health problem. So that's i do a session called life by the balls um which is which is about <laughs> ironically about looking after yourself about you know not being so macho and so you know um you know mass you know having that kind of unhelpful masculinity and actually admitting you might have a problem and actually going to ask for help about it so that's one of the one of the things i talk about through my experiences um and i'm imagining you're you're thinking about my other experience that i talk about my, my family experience with my sister um I suppose I should say there's a trigger warning coming up. Um, my in 2012, my sister was killed by um, a man that she'd left her husband for 18 months before. Um, she left a family for a guy that she'd met on on Facebook who was interested in motorbikes. And, you know, she, Sarah was a bit of a petrol head and she was really into motorbikes and cars and, you know, doing up old cars. And she'd always been really into into things with engines so uh, she was she's mad for this she, she ended when facebook came around she started chatting to loads of people on forums then all of a sudden that narrowed down to this guy ian hope and they arranged secretly for him to come down on his motorbike and pick her up and she was living in norfolk at the time with her with her husband and her two kids and they went up to live in newcastle Sarah and I didn't really get on as, as adults. We decided when I'd left home at college and then my parents split up and then she kind of left home and, you know, did, did her thing. We, we just kind of grew apart, really. And we just kind of had this unspoken agreement that we were going to send each other Christmas and birthday cards and stuff for the kids and things. But that was about it. We didn't really get on. So it wasn't unusual that I hadn't heard from Sarah, but my mum was saying, oh, I haven't really heard from her, but she seems to be happy with this, this white knight that had kind of come along and taken her away. But um on the 25th of um 
February in 2012. She was killed after um, a horrendous um, 18 months experience of a number of hospital visits, loads and loads of experiences go, uh, with the police, neighbours being called. Um, he was charged with common assault for hitting her over the head with a, um, uh, a rolling pin in January. She had a fractured skull. She was in hospital for four days. And during that time, after kind of 18 months of this, the, 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 the hospital staff, the police, dis encouraged her to say, you know, you need to take him to court about this. This is getting really serious. So early in that month, on, on, on Valentine's Day, ironically, in 2012, he was in court charged with common assault. He was uh, found guilty. They were imposed a, a separate living rule. The judge said that they need to live apart, um, which lasted for one day. He then decided to move back in. He couldn't live without her, is what he said. On the 22nd, he had his first anger management session. And on the 25th, um, he stabbed her. And, and after, you know, that, that, and as, as I look back on what happened, um, just to say, I had no knowledge at all about domestic abuse, domestic violence, coercive control or anything that goes on that we, you know, we might not want to talk about because it's behind closed doors. So I, after a couple of years of after he'd been he was basically found guilty of murder and he was given life with a minimum of 17 years. So he's about halfway through his sentence now. And as a result of that, I decided I need to know about this and I also need to talk to young people about this because of part of the personal social social health and education um, and um, economic education and also as part of relationships and sexual education. I need to talk to young people about this because I need women to understand what the, the red flags are in relationships and I also need men to understand that there are I mean it happens both ways but the the but the um, the vast majority of domestic abuse incidents are men against women where women are the victims so if you look at i'm, I'm going on a bit here but it's something i'm absolutely passionate about yeah, I, think, no. I think we need to talk more more about it um in um in the in england and wales up to 2018 19 92% of defendants in cases that went to court around domestic abuse and domestic violence were men against women Mm -hmm. and 83% of those men have done it before. So they are repeat offenders. So whatever is happening to the 92% that are in court or are charged or, you know, given sentences, it isn't making a difference because uh, domestic abuse and domestic violence are escalating and repeat offences. So I think it's vitally important that I talk to young people about healthy relationships, that I talk to them about things like coercive control which happens you know there's an eight stage process which is in a fascinating book by a woman called jane monkton smith who's a professor in in uh, criminology which talks about the eight stages that lead to um, homicide and sarah and my sister was called sarah sarah gosling her her and ian hope's relationship almost mirror exactly the eight stage process that she's researched over the last 10 years of hundreds of women that have been killed by men and it follows almost identically the pattern that that happens within this that now that a lot of police forces are being taught now use the eight stage model um but i think it's um i think that it, it's kind of my passion which sounds a bit grim but it's my passion that young people understand 
yeah. how control starts, how to recognize the signs. And also I want boys and young men to understand what sexism and misogyny are and actually to start kind of supporting each other to stop behaving in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that, you know, like the red flags and stuff, like when you're 16 or younger, you don't you don't know that because you've not experienced that, do you? And it's only when you're in kind of too too far and then I don't know you kind of codependent on each other like you said like can't live without each other it's it gets very toxic very fast do you think that um I don't know given talks and these workshops do you feel like the children kind of engage more because obviously like you've everyone has like issues not issues but things that happen in life like life's never perfect do you think if you were given a talk and were like my life's perfect. I've got this job. I've got this, 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 and this, and I'm telling you to do this. Do you think, mm. they, do you think they'd engage as much? Well, like you said, no one's life's perfect and, and no one's life is normal. I mean, we, we, we're told that we want, we should go for this, you know, we need this. This is what, a, you know, like a Lego, almost like a Lego family. We've got a Lego house with four Lego people that live in it. And we have this car and we have this kind of life. And we have we definitely have a white BMW, don't we? And we have a you know, we have a this and we have we live in a Barrett house. And this is what our house, our family is going to look like. There's no such thing as normal, which is why one of the most powerful things that happens when I talk in schools and I tell about, you know, talk about Sarah's situation is that I, I first of all, don't I ask the school not to tell them that I'm talking about my sister because I'm just telling the story of Sarah Gosling and then I'll say the reason I'm telling you this is because Sarah was my sister and there's an immediate there's a gasp of air in the room when I do that and I think it it comes across very differently because the way that domestic abuse and violence is framed in the UK well worldwide almost is that it's a women's issue Mm. it's not a women's issue at all it's an issue of male violence. And I think unless we acknowledge that and we talk about that, then we never get to really discuss the real situations and we can't hope to start talking about it. So I'm not really answering your question, which I'll come back to, but I think it's really important that, um, as we were saying about life's never normal, some of the children that I speak with and some of the, the teachers will make certain children aware because they know that they have complicated lives at home and they, they will have experienced this 750,000 kids in the UK live with domestic abuse. Wow. So statistically there are going to be children and staff in every school that are affected by it. Mm. So ones that they know about, they will warn and they'll give the students the opportunity to come in and, and you know, or not. Every student is told that, you know, beforehand, the pastoral team, the counsellor is going to be made available if it upsets you. There will still be students, probably 30% of the time, there'll be a child that everyone suddenly focuses on and a teacher takes out. Because what is normal for them might not be something that they realise is abuse, is coercive control, is violence in their house, because our own house is what we see as normal. Mm-hmm. if you come into a house and you know dad's in a bad mood you can't speak to him otherwise he's going to throw the table at the wall again you know that that kind of thing he's going to kick the telly and that that's not normal behavior but it's normal for you because you know there are certain things that upset dad or mum. but you, you know large like i said largely it's a problem of male violence so um 
but I think if I went in and go, oh yeah, this is what you should do. This is what you should do. My life's brilliant. I think first of all, a lot of people are going to go. So, <laughs> you know, who helped you get there? And the other thing is that, that that's not that doesn't really impress people, does it? I think authenticity is is what helps young people. Yeah. It's what helps all of us to engage with the speaker, which is why I suppose I I enjoy what I do, and I do I do tell the personal stuff, but I also do. Um, other talks but which are based on me being an idiot in the past but actually here's what I did to change things around and here's how here's what helped me so here's what's going to help you and that's a lot of the stuff that I've put in the book is about thinking about you know everyone thinks people think oh I'm going to do this as a job and then they, they do that as a job well life's not like that you might set out thinking my parents want me to do this but I don't really want to but I'm going to go to university or oh, I don't really like university or then then you go to university or you meet someone at university and you think you never go back to your own home your own hometown you go and live with them and then you kind of get a job there and then you maybe think oh I don't really like that I'm gonna I'm gonna go and do this and then you end up with a really weird and wonky career path so I think it's very un, unrealistic for the kind of careers industry if you like to say this is what you should do for the rest of your life because let's yeah. be honest none of us have done that there's very few people I've ever met that have gone oh yeah I want to be I want to be a corporate lawyer my dad was a corporate lawyer, so I went to university to do law. I'm now a corporate lawyer. There's one person I've met in my entire life, and that was his life story. Everybody else I've ever met that haven't really planned to do what they're doing. So I think let's look at skills. Let's look at what you're good at. Let's look at where you fit into the world, because those skills are largely going to be portable. If you're great with people, if you're good at technology, if you're good at you know this, that, and the other, then you can use that in customer service. You can use that in production. You can use that in loads of different places. So I'm much more about thinking, where do you fit into the world now and how's the world going to change and how can you adapt to that which is more about skills if you go back to the domestic abuse thing and you were saying about like men generally yeah. men, do you think with the amber heard johnny depp case that the conversation has become more mainstream and that potentially people are thinking or oh, maybe women do it as well maybe men do you know do you think that's got because it was so popular with people because of the celebrity status do you think that's actually got the conversation going more in schools do you think no well I don't know I think it's not been very helpful though no because of the way well the world has come out on Johnny Johnny Depp's side and let's let's not forget that that that, that was about that was about what she wrote about their relationship when he's already been proven to have domestically abused her this was about him trying to silence her after the after the article she wrote and he was trying to kind of get his own back on her I think in some ways it may have made it worse in terms of um, women are going to find it much more difficult to be believed I think and I think you know this kind of you know that that can't that classic question well if it was so bad why didn't she leave the other side of that is why did he keep doing what he was doing so I think this is powerful celebrity using his power to kind of shut her up if she didn't have a powerful voice he wouldn't have gone to court to try and silence her so that might be a controversial view but i, I don't think it's been very helpful to to women's rights or also about the debate about domestic abuse and violence if i'm per perfectly honest because um it we i think a lot a largely it's been forgotten that this is a libel or a kind of you know like a, a writ about 
the truth of what she said. It's more about silencing her. But as a result, lots of things came out in the in the court case that I said, well, she's as bad as him. And I'm not 100 percent sure that that's true. If we move on from that topic, um, yeah. can you talk to me about the TEDx talk you did. Do you want to explain what that is to listeners? Like my literal dream would be to do a TED talk or a TEDx talk. Like I try and listen to a TED talk every day, just yeah. like hear what they're saying. Can you yeah. sort of explain what that process was like and, and what, it, what it is? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, the big TED talks are amazing people in you know with fantastic ideas if you think about someone like um reshma sajani have you come across her no he is a woman that started an organization called girls who code and she has now started ten thousand coding clubs for girls across the world and she was in tech and she realized that the world was not going to change in the benefit of women unless girls were taught to code so that's my one of my favorite tedx talks is by hers another one called uh, by rita pearson which is called every child needs a champion which is about supporting young people to, to be the best they can be and it's you know a, a global phenomenon ted it has their own video channel it's brilliant it's amazing people simon sonex simon sinex one called uh, getting to why is amazing it's about your purpose and finding out what it is and then independently organized ones called tedx talks were in, were were spread out from about 2012 onwards i was invited to do one and you have um 18 minutes you stand on a red dot on the middle of a stage and you talk for 18 minutes about a subject that sp inspires you lights your fire and that you want to pass on to other other people the, the, the strap line is ideas worth sharing. So I didn't really have a specific topic that I was asked to speak about. They said, speak about whatever matters to you. So that's why I did. I kind of did a potted history of what I did with young, what I've done with young people and called it engineering random opportunities to succeed because I am all about helping young people to see who they could be, but not necessarily by kind of telling them what they're going to do i'll give them challenges and say right this is what you're going to do you're going to invent a new vehicle you're going to design a brand new soap product you're going to create a future town that's much more environmentally friendly get them to design it and then get them to present it so that's that's that was the idea behind it engineering random opportunities to succeed and from that i started to do some research into the inequalities of opportunity that we have certainly in the uk in terms of where you're born um, your parental income, um, your race, your background. And then that's where my book, The Ladder, came from, because all, all the thinking that I did put going into the engineering random opportunities talk became The Ladder. And The Ladder is about supporting students towards successful futures and confident career choices. So I want young people to be able to think about their futures and move towards the future they want. And my book is about helping teachers to help young people in all areas of life so that when someone says, what are you good at? They don't go, oh, oh which is what a, a lad in Bolton once said to me. It was a brilliant donkey impression, but it was not really a helpful answer to the question. <laughs> so what, you know, what, what are you good at? I want young people to be able to go, well, actually, I'm pretty good at music. I can do this. I can do that. I'm OK at maths, um, but I struggle with this, but I'm, I'm learning on that, you know, rather than I don't know or sitting back on their chair and going absolutely nothing because I've had that as well. So let's get young people appreciating who they are, what skills they've got 
and where they fit into the world. And, and my book, The Ladder, will help teachers to, to do that, to develop their, their young people's skills. And it's by tiny little changes in, I'm not asking them to change the curriculum completely. I'm just <laughs> asking them to think about small changes on a regular basis that can help young people reflect on their own skills. So TEDx was the, was the, the kind of, the the kind of impetus for me to to push on to write a book and it was it was a delight to do I was the most nervous about that 18 minutes than anything else I've ever done before wow I mean I can you can just tell from you that you're so passionate about you know like helping children helping like teenagers about sort of their way up the what their way in life because you know sometimes parents or people be like oh like with me be like oh she, not my parents but some people would say oh you talk too much or, you know, don't talk, apply yourself. But actually yeah. talking is kind of what I do for a job now. So, yeah. you, you know, swings and roundabouts in that way. So what's the future for you? What's next? Ooh, now that is a good question. Um, I'm thinking about another book, actually. I'm writing, I'm, I've got the kind of the, the, the bare bones of a book that I need to go to my publisher, which is Crown House. I need to go to them and independent thinking and speak to them about it. But it's a, called Empathy Light Bulbs. And Empathy Light Bulbs is something that I'm working on. Now, I came to this phrase because a lot of men have a light bulb moment. When they have a daughter, a lot of men suddenly go, I need to protect her from the world. And the people like the blokes that me and my mates used to be. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's an empathy light bulb. That's a kind of, oh, I see it now from someone else's point of view. So I, I want to kind of inculcate this idea of preemptive compassion. So we see things from other people's points of view so that these empathy light bulbs are something that we build in, not only for young people, but also for adults who maybe have had challenging lives through their own fault or through no fault of their own. And actually to, instead of being angry and kind of lashing out, what can we do to help other people? Like almost like a kindness movement, but much more about empathy, understanding other people, not pity, understanding, accepting, and then being much more, I suppose, open with, with who yeah. you are and how you fit into the world. So that's I mean, one of the things, that's what's, that's what's next for me, actually. I'm really passionate about that. I mean, it, it all sounds so exciting. Um, we're running out of time on this episode. But I'd love to have you back for like a part two, maybe later on in the year. <laughs> or something. I mean that honestly. Um, so if people want to find out a bit more about what you do, very briefly, are you able, what, do you have yeah. a website or Instagram or what kind of, yeah. how can they follow you? Yeah, I mean, we first got in touch through Instagram. I, I don't do a lot of my stuff on Instagram. Um, I, my company name is Innovative Enterprise and the website is innovativeenterprise.co.uk. And I spend a lot of time on Twitter, um, sometimes for good, because I have a load of teachers as my connections. And that's one of my main marketing platforms. And I'm at Enterprise Sbox which stands for Enterprise Soapbox, but it's obviously shorter. Enterprise Sbox is my uh, Twitter and also my Instagram handle. Um, and my book is, as I said, is called The Ladder and my publisher is called Crown House. Amazing. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and chatting to me. It's thank been you, really interesting. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. To keep up to date with all things from a Lancashire Lass, follow on Facebook and Instagram at from a Lancashire Lass.